ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients needed for optimal health. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line based on the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research that closes the nutrient gap so you can feel and perform your best. Unlike most supplements, which use cheap synthetic ingredients your body can't absorb, our products are made with clinician-grade, bioavailable ingredients that make a real and noticeable difference. We have a full range of products, from the most advanced multivitamin and phytonutrient formula on the market, to a blend of eight organic superfood mushrooms, including reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, to a highly absorbable liquid D3K2 dropper. Our newest product is BioAvail Omega Plus, a blend of ultra-pure fish oil and the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil in a single two soft gel serving. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits. But until now, they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. BioVail Omega Plus gives you a natural and effective way to improve joint and muscle health, boost exercise performance and recovery, elevate mood and mental clarity, and regulate immune function. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Crosser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, my guest is Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, and we are going to dive into recent research on the nutritional differences between grass and grain-fed meat. Now, intuitively, we might suspect that there are significant differences here. We know that for, for human beings, you know, if, if a human being changes their diet significantly, then they're going to see differences in their own you know, biochemical markers that reflect health and differences in blood levels of various compounds based on their diet. And so, of course, we suspect that that's also true for animals that are consuming different diets, grass versus grain feed. And certainly we have had research in the past that gave us some indications here, particularly for essential vitamins and minerals. But what Dr. Van Vliet's group has done is take that to a greater level of resolution. They're looking at essential fatty acid profiles like omega-3 and omega-6, but also saturated fat but in much more detail. They're looking at carbon chain length and intermediary fatty acids. And then they are also starting to look at the presence of phytonutrients in meat, in grass-fed animals versus grain-fed animals. These are some of the same compounds that we get from eating plants, but it turns out that we may get meaningful amounts of them from eating uh, grass-fed animals. So. This was a fascinating conversation, a lot of cutting edge research here and some really exciting new insights into the importance of regenerative ranching and methods of raising animals and how that impacts animal health and very likely human health. So let's dive in. Stefan, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. I'm glad to be back, uh, Chris. It's been a while. It has been a while and you've been busy. I've been really looking forward to talking to you about some of your latest research on grazing practices and how they impact the nutritional composition of meat, because this is something that I've intuitively suspected for a long time, and we didn't really have until fairly recently much data to back up any kind of intuitive suspicions or guesses that we might have had about how grazing impacts the broader nutritional composition. Certainly we had some data on essential vitamins and minerals and fatty acids and things like that, but that's just one part of the nutritional composition of meat, an important part for sure, but not the only consideration. So uh, maybe you could just start by broadly uh, introducing what you've been up to lately and, and, and what kinds of uh, nutrients and nutritional profiles you've been looking at in meat in relation to grazing. Absolutely. So I think since last time that we spoke, I was actually still at uh, Duke University and uh, I've, I've moved to Utah now. So I'm at uh, the Center for Human Nutrition Studies at Utah State University. Uh, it's a great uh, position that opened up here. It's, uh, 
it's kind of like a clinical facility where I'm at. Uh, looks like a doctor's office, so we do a lot of uh, nutrition trials here. But what is nice about uh, uh, the place where I'm at now is that it's also an ag school. So there is this combination of ag culture, human nutrition, and it's really the sort of the field that uh, my research group operates in. So, so that's been nice. And um, yeah, we've continued a lot of our projects on, as you mentioned, how different grazing practices uh, impact the nutritional composition of meat. And, and we don't, don't just study meat. We broader look, uh, take a broader look at regenerative agriculture or we call it agroecology in science, but it's basically um, agricultural practices such as uh, multi-cropping, uh, lay rotations, where you maybe integrate animals and crops, uh, you have maybe multi-species grazing. So things that by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, one of the leading bodies on, on, on climate change suggests are practices that can improve the sustainability of agriculture. So essentially what we do in our group is we take a lot of those or look at a lot of those practices and see, well, do they also translate into a, a human nutrition benefit and potentially a human health benefit when we consume foods from more sustainable or regenerative systems? And, and it's really interesting that you noted that, Chris, about uh, intuitively um, how that would make a difference what you feed an animal, right? And, and I, I agree, intuitively it makes sense, but okay, we have to be critical as scientists and look at the data, but sort of... I come at this from a human nutrition standpoint, and we often study people that were on standard American diets or on Mediterranean diets or other whole foods diets, right? And if I'd ask you, Chris, after three months on those diets, would you expect a difference in health? You, you'd probably say yes. Mm -hmm. If we do that with a cow, then um, we put them on pasture for the last three months of their life or in a feedlot one could uh, expect to see differences there too, right? Because it's com two completely different diets. And if we do that with lab mice, we expect differences. But for some reason, for a long time with, with animals, we did not think there would be differences. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, a cow is a mammal, just like a human. And if you put them on two completely different diets, being on a grain-based ration in a feedlot or grazing outside on a large number of plants, you, you get a very much different nutritional profile and also an animal metabolic health profile. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's so, it, it's, it's common sense, but as you said, it, that's not enough if you want to be uh, rigor, rigorous in your scientific approach just to apply common sense. You have to do the research to back it up, and that's exactly what you've been working on. So tell us a little bit about some of the recent work you've been up to. So we've been working on a project that we started, I don't know if we started already last time we talked about, it's called the Beef Nutrient Density Project. Basically, we are working directly with farmers where we source uh, a lot of beef from, yeah, sort of the supply chain. And we also buy beef in stores, grass-fed, grain-fed. We work with some smaller feedlots that uh, may not feed as much grain or have shorter finishing periods. But basically, the goal of the project is, is to look at 250 farms 750 stakes, so three stakes per farm, and to look at the source of nutritional variation and what is causing that variation. And what we are seeing so far, Chris, is that on, in, on average, um, we see that the omega-6 to 3 ratio is improved in grass-fed beef, as you would expect. Uh, it's about uh, 3 to 1, so for every omega-6 three omega-6s, there's one omega-3. In the feedlot system, we see that it's about 10 to 1. Um, but it is also important to notice that there's huge variation, uh, about an 11-fold variation in uh, the grass-fed beef systems. And what we're seeing initially in our data is that definitely the ranchers that use these agroecological practices, such as rotational grazing on biodiverse pastures, moving the animals around regularly, not overgrazing on the pasture, they end up with the most favorable omega-6 to 3 ratios. We also typically see that the animals are in, in, in good metabolic health. We can tell that by uh, the meat as well, looking at, uh, for instance, oxidative stress markers, and also the phytochemicals, the plant secondary compounds that are thought to largely have uh, anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects, certainly to the animal, whether it has so to humans from consuming meat is, is up in the air at the moment, but okay, animal health is improved. We see that those are also the highest when people have uh, used these, these re regenerative or rotational grazing practices amongst grass-fed beef systems. 
when animals are grazing more monoculture pastures or they're overgrazing the pasture, we see a reduction in the nutrient density and then sort of the lowest uh, amounts of these quote-unquote beneficial compounds, omega-3s, uh, phytochemicals, uh, long-chain saturated fatty acids, B vitamins, that are typically a little bit reduced in the feedlot finished animals. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Again, it's, it's uh, one ecosystem where all of these different parts influence the whole. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of ranchers on the show over the past couple of years talking about the regenerative practices that you're referring to and why they're so important for animal health, for ecosystem, uh, local environment health, and then, of course, ultimately human health uh, from consuming animals that have better nutritional profiles. With that in mind, you know, like an 11-fold variation is really significant. How Would you say that the grass-fed animals that were on done in the most conventional way, let's say, were, actually, were close to feedlot animals, or was there still a difference? Yeah, no, that's a good question, Chris, and I, I cannot stick my hand in the fire for it, but my gut feeling tells me is that those animals were fed grains, and they weren't truly grass-fed. That's what I think, because, I mean, that that's what the data suggests. Um, and, and to be fair, these were samples that we just bought in grocery stores. So, unfortunately, that means also that we don't have insight into their practices, per se. I mean, and... and uh, uh, obviously, we know the brand, but we keep this all sort of you know, de-identified, obviously. But yeah, looking at that data, to me, it suggests that these animals were not like grass fat. And um, because sometimes they even had worse omega-6 to 3 ratios than your average feedlot beef. And But I must say the farmers that uh, we worked with directly or they sent in samples and filled out their management data and they, you know, the ones that use these quote-unquote rotational grazing practices, agroecological practices, or regenerative practices, as people often say, yeah, those rose to the top in terms of a lot of these farmers had omega-6 to 3 ratios that were closer uh, to 1 to 1 and 2 to 1. So that's kind of considered the, you know, the gold standard, uh, really. And they also ended up with high amounts of, uh, of phytochemicals, plant secondary compounds. And one thing we also noticed was is that niacin, uh, vitamin B3, was also uh, elevated in many of these, these farmers and yeah, suggesting that, uh, and we know that the fresh forages provide the precursors to, uh, to, that, to that vitamin. So those were things that we noticed. And we also noticed, and this was also kind of surprising to me initially, but then, Looking back on it, it cannot be too surprising because we were so focused in the field on omega-3 fatty acids that we did not really look at saturated fatty acids pro uh, properly in the, in the past. But what we're seeing in polyunsaturated fatty acids, we see these very long chain ones such as EPA and DHA and, and ALA and DPA. We see those getting enriched. So the very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. Well, we see the same thing with saturated fatty acids. The very long chain ones, such as uh, uh, behenic acid, for instance, or nonodecanoic acid. Um, so it's C18 and up for, for the sort of the, the, the listeners that have an idea on, on the carbon uh, uh, lengths of, of these fatty acids. But these long chain ones, they're they are up as a result of uh, forage-based diets. And what is interesting is that at least in epidemiological studies, higher amounts, circulating amounts of these very long chain saturated fatty acids are often neutral or associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes. So um, yeah, certainly is interesting. And then another avenue to explore is that saturated fat isn't saturated fat isn't saturated fat either. And, and you know, there's a concern regarding saturated fat from, from beef and uh, red meat. And we can go into that uh, too, whether that is always justified. But anyway, we do see a more, quote unquote, at least on paper, favorable saturated fatty acid profile too. And that was something that was not on my radar. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, I want to come back to that. But I also want to touch on the phytochemicals briefly, because I think this is something that if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, was novel um, with your research, or, or at least it seems like I might have seen in one one other paper. I could be imagining that, but I, I'm I'm interested in this. We like you said, we don't know what whether consuming these phytochemicals in meat um, has any human health effects. We do know that it does seem to benefit 
the animal. And again, you know, just applying common sense, a, a healthier animal, all other things being equal, will probably lead to better nutritional profile and composition and, and you know, healthier human if they're eating that animal. But what do we know about, you know, maybe you could give some examples of these phytochemicals and what we know about how they're impacting the animal's health and any, if there's anything at all so far that's been published in terms of the human health effects of phytonutrients in meat. Because of course, the common wisdom is you can only get phytonutrients from plants, you know, from eating plant foods. And if it's true that we can get phytonutrients as well from consuming animal foods, that's a pretty big shift in what, you know, the dominant kind of paradigm or idea about nutrition. Yeah, no, that's true, Chris. And you can get phytonutrients from drinking breast milk as well. So because, right. uh, uh, you know, and, and whether it's breast milk from as a baby from uh, from a nursing mother, uh, certainly not saying you should eat, drink uh, breast milk as an adult. <laughs> but but it, my, my point being is if you can find this in breast milk of mothers that consume a uh, diet rich in fruits and vegetables, and it's transferred to the baby like that. It's it's not uh, that uh, weird to think that if you feed a phytochemically rich diet to a cow, that it's milk and meat gets enriched in these phytochemicals. So phytochemicals are secondary metabolites of plants. We call them secondary because for the longest time we had no idea what they did. So we thought they weren't important. They are not essential to the plant survival from sort of a metabolism standpoint. But I would argue that without these phytochemicals, which are often uh, plant defense mechanisms against overgrazing. Uh, so sometimes, uh, you know, a plant likes to maybe be nibble a little bit, but not eaten fully. So certain alkaloids, or it's protecting itself from UV light or, or uh, water stress or drought. So a lot of times these are plant defense mechanisms, but they're also sort of volatile compounds, fragrance that attract uh, animals to eat them. So so it has a dual role, but these, these plant phytochemicals, they are typically also noted as antioxidants. So all uh, phytochemicals or most phytochemicals have a hydroxyl group, and that means that they are antioxidants. So they can serve as antioxidants, uh, most of them at least, when animals consume them and also when we consume them. And it's really a, a novel area of research for sure. I mean, I often compare it to, I mean, I wasn't alive clearly, but... Uh, uh, I teach a course in advanced micronutrient metabolism where we go a lot over the history of how these vitamins were discovered. And, and this was about 100 years ago. And, you know, there were rapid discoveries about vitamins, how they impacted metabolism. And I feel like we're a little bit in at that stage now with phytochemicals. It is in its infancy. There's probably hundreds of thousands of these compounds, but we have identified major ones. And these are things that are often named after the food that they're rich in. So we have major one is cinnamic acid. It is rich in cinnamon, but it's almost found in every plant. Uh, we have caffeic acid, benzoic acid. Uh, these are all common, common phytochemicals that, uh, that are, are found within plants, but also animals and then uh, humans. And what is interesting about, about those is that, yes, if you consume a more phytochemically rich diet, whether you're a human, or an animal that we have higher amounts of these. So, and what is particularly, I think, interesting, some of the findings that we're making regarding animal sourced foods, animals, especially ruminants, consume forages or vegetation that you and I cannot consume. Mm -hmm. They might be toxic to us or they might be too fibrous, and, but they may also contain certain beneficial or medicinal compounds. And that is a way of further providing these to, uh, to us in our diet. And then, of course, it also further increases the overall phytochemical richness of our diet. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I've always argued is that, you know, cattle can transform plant foods that we can't consume because of our different physiology into compounds that are beneficial for us. So they do a lot of that hard work for us and we benefit from it. And this seems to be potentially another area where that's also true. And I find it particularly interesting in, in, in light of the recent popularity of the carnivore diet and, you know, a lot of discussion around, well, is, you know, if we look at historical, traditional cultures historically, uh, to, to, to my knowledge, we don't know of a single one that only ate animal foods, like 100% exclusively animal foods, nor do we know of one that ate 
exclusively plant foods. And it seems that, you know, just judging from this ancestral template, that some some combination of plant and animal food seems to be best for for most people. And I, you know, that's a controversial <laughs> statement these days, but that's my my belief. But it is interesting to me that there's that you know I, I've often wondered. Well, if that's true, we also know that some people are thriving on a you know, or, or at least appear to be thriving from all the ways that we can measure that, both subjectively and objectively, on a carnivore diet. And if these phytonutrients are so beneficial to health, which so many studies do suggest that they are, how do you resolve that apparent contradiction? And maybe, we don't know yet, but maybe this is one potential way of resolving that contradiction, that actually people are getting phytonutrients. They're just getting them from animal foods instead of plant foods. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Chris. And that, that's certainly true. But although I do want to make it crystal clear is that a uh, a plant is a better source of phytochemicals than uh, a piece of meat or milk. Um, so I always say that a carrot is a better source of beta carotene than, uh, than grass-fed beef is. And I agree that people that are on animal-based diets or on carnivore diets are likely to get some of these phytochemicals in from uh, animal sourced foods, but yeah, they're not getting it in to the extent that uh, someone on a mixed diet, on an omnivorous diet, would that includes uh, plenty of fruits and vegetables as well. And I'm, I'm with you, Chris, is uh, that uh, I think for the vast majority of the population, I think they operate best on a uh, sort of a spectrum of omnivory, uh, having both plant and animal source foods. But it is true that you always have outliers that a certain portion of the population seems to be thriving on vegan diets. And a certain portion, and I, I know we have less data on that, and it's more self-reported, but seems to be in good health on an animal-based diet. And um, I always question whether that means that we should extrapolate that on to how the entire population uh, should eat. Um, I don't know how, how, what your feelings are about it, but I don't think that every vegan that filled a vegan diet is because they didn't do the diet right. I mean, we know there's intra-individual differences in nutrient metabolism from many different studies and how you metabolize uh, even things such as iron or uh, carotenoids and, and tocopherols, uh, precursors to uh, vitamin A and E. But yeah, it, it, uh, to me, it always points to the following. It's just the incredible resilience as a human being that we can be on a vegan diet or on a carnivore diet and still be alive. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've spoken a lot a, a lot about this in the past and have experienced it firsthand. When I tried a vegan diet many years ago, and also with many, many patients that I've worked with and many clinicians I've trained that have worked with patients as well. So I, I have a pretty broad perspective on this that's backed up by a lot of lab testing and data. I think there is such huge inter-individual variation in responses to vegan diets for all of the, the reasons that you mentioned is that Plants contain a lot of precursor nutrients, and those nutrients often need to be converted into the most active forms to be, you know, for us to get the full benefits. So car carotenes are a good example. They get converted into retinol. Uh, K1 gets converted into K2. You have the alpha linolenic acid, you know, the essential fatty acids, like linoleic acid and alpha linolenic acid get converted into the downstream EPA and DHA or AA in the case of omega-6s, you've got all of these conversions happening all the time. And those conversions often involve multi-step enzymatic pathways. And each of those enzymes at each of those steps requires the presence of certain nutrients, which often are underrepresented on a vegan diet. But if you have someone who just genetically is, or because they're doing a better job at sourcing nutrients, is doing a really is really efficiently making those conversions, then they could potentially do quite well because they're still getting all of the downstream active forms of all of the nutrients in adequate amounts. Whereas if you have somebody who, for either genetic or nutritional reasons, is not making those conversions efficiently, then that person can start to struggle almost immediately in some cases. In others, it might take a few months or in, in still others, it could take even longer. And that can, that's what makes this so tricky because one person might you know, start a vegan diet and have a really great experience, and then someone else starts it and they feel like they got hit by a bus 
And the person who had a great experience naturally thinks, well, you must not be doing it right because I started it and I feel great. Uh, but of course, it's not that simple. And I would just say that, yes, it's possible uh, for some people to do well on a 100% plant-based diet, but you introduce a lot of risk that wouldn't be there if you're consuming an omnivorous diet where you're also eating preformed, you know, the active preformed version of the nutrients like retinol or K2 um, or EPA and DHA instead of just ALA. So that's, that's kind of my take on it. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. I'm so excited to tell you about a new product we just launched at Adapt Naturals. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits. But until now, they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. What's more, many fish oils on the market are rancid or contain toxins like heavy metals and PCBs. And curcumin and black seed oil are not well absorbed unless special preparations are used. BioVail Omega Plus combines the purest and freshest fish oil with the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil, so you get the incredible benefits of these nutrients in a single, two soft gel serving. Those benefits include supporting joint and muscle health, can boost your performance and recovery and feel more youthful and vital. Improving cognitive function and mood, sharpen your focus and memory and recover that spring in your step. Promoting metabolic and heart health, which helps maintain normal weight, blood sugar, and cholesterol levels. And regulating immune function, which reduces immune hyperactivity and strengthens protection against viruses and other pathogens. This is an incredible product for anyone who needs extra support with inflammation, pain, joint issues, autoimmunity, cognitive function and mood, and metabolic and heart health. We're running a limited time special as part of the launch of BioVail Omega Plus. You can save 20% off your first order of this product through Sunday, July 23rd. Visit adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com to place your order and experience the incredibly powerful benefits of fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil in BioVail Omega Plus. Yeah, and, and it made me think of an important point, Chris, when you mentioned that also about like the conversion and because it's oftentimes something that we hear also on uh, uh, these phytochemicals and we don't fully understand the pathways yet, but because you, you know, you have, uh, we know there's a flavonoid, flavonoid pathway, for instance, within, within plants where, you know, you might start, actually you start all the way with amino acids, right? Because you started with phenylalanine and, and tyrosine and it's converted into uh, cinnamic acid, cumeric acid. These are common major phytochemicals, naringenin, and from there on it goes down to flavonones, isoflavones, anthocyanidins, right? Which are red to purple. They give the, the berries their, their nice color. And what we see though also in, in sort of the literature is that people with a low baseline intake, when you then increase it, they have a benefit. I mean, there was a randomized controlled trial that recently came out in PNAS that uh, uh, looked at, I think it was about 3,500 people and people with low 
baseline intake of flavanols uh, improved cognitive function over several years, uh, not ones that are already high, high intake. So that's also common to see. And also what's important to know is that incredible variation amongst people, because even if you, for instance, give a, uh, a labeled phytochemical to someone, so basically it has a sort of a, yeah, it has a turning carbon label on it. I won't get too technical, but it basically, it's like putting a flag on that phytochemical, giving it to someone and then tracing it to the body. Now that, and, and this is also speaks to the fact that usually people say, oh, these things have low bioavailability. Well, I do not agree with that hundred percent because what you see is that let's say if you take uh, cumeric acid as the parent compound and you have that labeled, well, what you see is you start enriching 20, 30 other compounds in the, in the blood of people. So there must be some conversion probably by our gut microbiota, perhaps even in, in our liver that then actually starts to you know, enrich or produce other compounds or other antioxidants that, that have a beneficial effect. And some studies would suggest that the bioavailability of the parent compound may only be 1%. But if you look at all these other phytochemicals that may be like 13%, 15%, and, and they are measurable in our blood for 48 hours. So, uh, and, and within that, they may, you know, go into our, our cells and then uh, our brain or an escape again, you know, this is, still very much a, a, a novel area of interest. But um, yeah, what you do see, and what you also see there is the variation amongst people, right? And it again comes back to, even with, with phytochemicals, if you're very efficient in, uh, in, in metabolizing these, uh, you know, that's why maybe some people might have more benefited for, for than others. And, and perhaps uh, some carnivores are very efficient in maintaining these phytochemicals and, and, and using them. I mean, we, we don't know. But my point being is, is that, uh, yeah, I'd say there is now data that is exciting about phytochemicals because also the Eat Right Foundation for the first time came out with a um, recommendation on the amounts of flavones that we should eat. And I think it was about 600 milligrams a day. And it was based on uh, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. I think they looked at, uh, uh, I think it was like 120 or something like that. So. I mean, it's certainly, we are certainly learning more and more about these uh, phytochemicals and, and starting to learn that, hey, they do impact, yeah, signaling pathways. For instance, one thing to note is that, yeah, if you, if you take a, a tumor cell and you put phytochemicals on it, you typically see a decrease in uh, tumor growth. Or if you have pancreatic beta cells and you see that it impacts uh, uh, insulin production and things like that. So um, how they do so in vivo in the human body we don't know a lot yet, but it is likely that they are impacting our health. And uh, the same thing with, uh, with, with animals. What we see is that animals on more phytochemically rich diets, yet they have less oxidative stress. And uh, on paper, that meat looks healthier, but whether that has an appreciable in impact on human health, that's, that's something that uh, we are studying in multiple randomized controlled trials now. Yeah, so fascinating. I want to circle back to something you we were talking about earlier, which is fatty acid profile in meat and the fact that the ranches they're using the, the, the most regenerative practices are probably getting clo you know closer to two to one or even one to one omega six to omega three ratio, which is probably closer to the historical ratio of these fats before that we consume before industrial seed oils were widely introduced into the diet. Do you think that if someone is eating, like take a hypothetical person who's exclusively eating meat from a regenerative ranch that's in that one-to-one, two-to-one ratio, I haven't done the math on this yet, but would that, if they were just consuming meat and not much uh, seafood, would they be getting enough omega-3s to meet the, the recommended amounts just from that uh, you know, beef-based diet? Yeah, I mean, there is some, some modeling work, Chris, in Australian populations and in Irish populations. It's a combination of modeling work based on intake, but it would suggest that uh, um, people that eat a, a decent amount of meat, I mean, carnivores obviously probably eat a couple of pounds, uh, you know, a few pounds a day, I think. But um, what, what these studies would suggest in more omnivorous populations that people that eat, let's say, you know, three, four ounces a day or so, that, yeah, it, it can have a meaningful contribution to their omega-3 uh, intake and can be up to you know, 30 milligrams or so. 
of combined DHA, EPA, and uh, DPA. And uh, so there's no official recommendations for the amount of omega-3s that we should eat, right? Most uh, groups recommend uh, anywhere from like 100 to 200, 300 milligrams, although uh, at least in, in coastal populations, even currently, they, they might go higher than that, especially in Sardinia or some of the Japanese that are consuming more fish, they might have an intake that is uh, closer to a gram or so even. But my point is there is there are some studies to suggest that, yes, these omega-3s can com contribute meaningfully, especially in, uh, in populations that eat a lot of grass-fed meat, such as Australians and, and the Irish. And there was a nice study that... Uh, that came out, I think, uh, a year or so ago from uh, from Hannah Ritchie in, in Newcastle, and uh, she, based on population intake data in uh, in the UK, had modeled that yeah, uh, about 30, 40 percent or so of uh, of, of daily intake uh, recommended by by a European agency could be met by eating uh, grass fed meat alone, right? And that does not even include uh, eggs and. Uh, um, and this was only beef, I must say, but it doesn't even include mm. eggs or pork or other uh, right. uh, milk for that matter. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's possible. I mean, is there a benefit to eating fish? Yes, absolutely. I mean, fish is fatty fish is a very rich source of uh, DHA and EPA. So I would, uh, if you ask me personally, then, yeah, I would opt for eating fish a few times a week, too. But, you know, we eat meat more often probably than fish, at least most people. So if we eat that from from pasture systems, then, yes, I think it can contribute meaningfully. And. Again, I, I I don't know the uh, I don't have the data, but my hypothesis would be if you have a, had a carnivore person that was eating grain-fed meat for his grass-fed meat, is that the blood omega-6 ratio of that person eating grass-fed beef uh, would look a whole lot better. Absolutely, I, I just think it's interesting because again, it's another paradigm shift, right? Historically, most sources would would not list beef as a meaningful. Uh, contributor to uh, omega-3 fat in the long chain omega-3 fat intake. And, and it still isn't in many cases, right? We're, we're talking about meat that comes from that's raised in a particular way. And, you know, if someone's just the average person's going to the average grocery store and buying the average cut of beef, they're not going to get this benefit. So, you know, this, this is not applicable to the vast majority of beef that people are encountering in the grocery store at this time. But, but we both know that there's a lot happening here in this space. And a lot of people are becoming more and more aware of the benefits of regenerative, regeneratively raised beef and people are seeking it out and they're ordering it directly from ranches or they're or getting it at farmer's market or they're buying it from some, you know, in some cases, you know, online directly from ranches uh, even outside of their local area. So uh, as we, you know, as this continues to progress, which I hope it does, this this will become more relevant. And I'm I'm with you. I I've been a big advocate for consuming wild caught, sustainably raised fish and shellfish, particularly the cold water fatty fish and some of the shellfish like oysters, really rich source of EPA and DHA. But Beyond that, also a very rich source of bioavailable protein, selenium, and many other nutrients. So you get more than just the, the fatty acids. For any number of reasons, many people do not consume enough seafood to really move the needle. Uh, it could be because they just don't like seafood. I've had a lot of patients in the past who just don't care for fish or, or, or shellfish. Uh, could be an access issue you know, either financially or they live somewhere where they just don't really have access to, to fresh fish or, sh or shellfish. Some, some people are, have environmental concerns. You know, there are lots of reasons that people don't get enough. And so I'm excited by the possibility that, you know, properly raised uh, or well-raised beef could actually make a contribution for these folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know, Chris, from, from I think there's... Uh... I had probably eight to 10 randomized controlled trials now that, that find that if you eat pastured meat, um, and these are studies, not just in beef, I think there's like two or three are in beef. There's one study even in horse meat. Uh, but the point being is, is that what they see in, in, in various randomized controlled trials is that the blood omega-3 profile goes up when people eat grass-fed meat, and then the control is usually grain-fed meat, and there the blood omega-3 profile doesn't go up. And, and this was already known, I think, in the... 
in the 90s, because uh, Sinclair was a researcher out of Australia. He did a lot of that initial work with uh, where he would compare um, grass-fed beef and kangaroo and even whitefish to look at, okay, what is the impact on uh, the blood omega-3 profiles? And, and what he shows is that, uh, yeah, they do go up, even with grass-fed uh, beef and, and kangaroo, which is also pastured, of course, uh, pasture finished, I mean, it's a wild animal. And uh, with grain-fed beef, you do not see this going up. So you, you do see these meaningful contribution. And I often get this sort of thrown in my face too. They say, oh, it's just a few milligrams of omega-3s that are in beef. And if you compare it to salmon, it's meaningless. Well, yeah, but studies would suggest that it does go up uh, meaningfully. And I, I think also, and this is something we, we do not fully understand, but I, it, I think it comes back to the food matrix, Chris, is that when you ingest these compounds as part of a complex food matrix with a bunch of cofactors, typically the effect is stronger than what you would expect. A, a very common uh, example of this is vitamin D. If we take a pill of vitamin D, at the exact same amount as something that a food source contains. The food source is about five to 10 times more efficient in raising vitamin D, probably because of the cofactors or some preformed factors that, uh, that are there. And I suspect something, something similar is going on too uh, when we eat um, things such as DHA, EPA, and other omega-3 fatty acids in a complex food source. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is Another actually Australian researcher whose work I've really uh, come to appreciate over the years, I think his name's Georgi Scrinis, and he talks about nutritionism and he talks about food synergy and how important food synergy is. And this is a great example where uh, we don't often think about all of the nutrients, cofactors, enzymes that are required to metabolize a specific nutrient. And when we isolate it and turn it into a supplement, you aren't always getting those other nutrients, especially if you're not combining them in an intelligent way. Uh, you you use the vitamin D example. That's a classic one. Another is um, copper and iron. I've had lots of patients over the years who had kind of inexplicable iron deficiency that didn't respond to iron supplementation. And then we would test them and find out that they were copper deficient. And copper is required for iron metabolism. You fix the copper deficiency, then all of a sudden they're not iron deficient anymore. And uh, yeah, vitamin C enhances iron absorption, magnesium enhances the metabolism of vitamin D and vice versa. So there's all these really um, complex synergies that are happening, Many of some of which we understand, many of which we don't. And this is yet another reason that eating whole foods or, or taking supplements that are whole food based is a lot better than, you know, isolated synthetic nutrients in general. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's, it's crackers. And it also sort of brings me back to like, uh, you know, the lipid peroxidation, for instance. I mean, if you have more, we know this from, uh, from, from vitamin E, right? If you, uh, that's why a lot of polyunsaturated source with polyunsaturated fats also contain a good amount of vitamin E because it protects the, the peroxidation of, of those uh, long chain uh, fatty acids. So, and something similar is, is probably going on too with uh, when you in, ingest a, a good amount of phytochemicals with it. So that could be another reason why grass-fed beef results in, in a further rise of that is because you're not oxidizing those lipids as, as, as much or uh, because you have a bunch of phytochemicals that act as antioxidants that come with it in the package, right? Hmm. And that is something you often don't have in supplements. And, and I agree. I mean, we, we know this from, from countless research also on uh, things like turmeric and curcumin, right? Curcumin being uh, yes. the, the main uh, ingredient. And then we take, out, uh, take that out and then do a like a total antioxidant assay, all of a sudden it's uh, much less effective. So you, you see this all the time. And yeah, that's why I, I think always, yeah, food first approach is always what I would suggest. And, you know, the further I get into this work also, it makes me realize how little we do now. We're really scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's both humbling and exciting because there's a lot that we can still understand and, and that knowledge that we're gaining has already led to some meaningful changes in how we look at things. Along those lines, a lot of the research we've had so far that's evaluating health response to grass-fed versus grain-fed meat has been observational in nature. And I think my, anyone who's been listening to this show for any length of time knows what the problems are there. Um, certainly good for generating hypotheses and can be very 
helpful, especially when it's when when those epidemiological trials are desi- are well designed and and in in a, in such a way that they try to at least attempt to control for potentially confounding factors. But it's almost impossible to control for all of them <laughs> and and even know what all of them are in a particular context. So randomized controlled trials can be helpful uh, because they can take another step in eliminating uh, confounders and give us more reliable data. So last time we talked, you dropped a hint that there might be some randomized controlled trials coming our way looking at this. What, what, how does consuming grass-fed meat impact our health versus grain-fed meat? So do you have any updates there? Well, uh, the only update is, is that we're uh, pretty deep into the study now, um, but uh, we haven't uh, have any, any data yet on it. Uh, but yeah, we are doing a study, at least a very acute study right now. So a postprandial study. So just an acute, and people come in, they eat an impossible burger, they eat uh, feedlot beef or they eat grass-fed beef from a very diverse uh, operation. So the, the, the grass-fed beef that we feed them has about a ratio of, of one-to-one. We use feedlot beef and then an impossible burger too as a third arm. And I think we've completed about 30 people now. And I think we're completing about 40 people. So we have 10 to go. But they basically come in three separate occasions. They eat an impossible burger, grass-fed beef or grain-fed beef. We pull blood from them for five hours. We collect the urine. And we want to see how it impacts their, their metabolite profiles. Because some of these phytochemicals, you can measure pretty quickly already in, in a few hours afterwards. And, and you can measure oxidative stress markers. Obviously, we can't say anything about long-term health. But we're doing that initial study to give us some biomarker data, and then we're following that up with a longer-term trial where we feed people uh, for, for several weeks. Um, so that's a study that is going on. And then we do have a study going on that is somewhat analogous to that, is that it's a study with the Green Acres Foundation, and we are, uh, we've sourced all of our foods from generative agriculture. So these are all the plant foods and animal source foods, or we source the exact same produce just from the grocery store, so non-organic produce, so which is typically produced uh, using more monoculture crops. Um, so that is also a study that we're about halfway through uh, with, but um, yeah, randomized control trials, you typically need uh, enough people and uh, enough time for, for something to, uh, to happen, if, if there is a difference at least. And uh, so those are some of the major studies that, uh, that we have ongoing in terms of randomized controlled trials. So unfortunately, no real big updates yet, but we are going to publish our work that we talked about, I think, the last time. We're going to publish it this year, hopefully, where we compared a whole foods diet versus a standard American diet. Also trying to match for at least food groups as much as possible. So if someone would get uh, some broccoli with butter, we'd go to the grocery store and, and, and find the broccoli and butter sauce with uh, 30 more ingredients. And, and so those are examples of, of meals and we you know, get potatoes with some olive oil or fries or things like that, um, other fries. To look at if you eat the same foods and matched for protein, for carbohydrates, for fat, for calories, because a lot of the idea about ultra processed foods right now is, is that you know, the reason why you get unhealthy is because you overeat. What Kevin Hall's study would suggest, well, we try to match for calories in this study. And what we found was is that people on the whole foods diet got healthy quite rapidly. They saw a reduction in triglycerides of about 30, 40% in, in a month. And uh, the people on the standard American diet, they kind of stayed the same because they were consuming a standard American diet going into the study. So uh, that's one, one study that uh, we will be publishing uh, this year. And, and it would suggest that the problems with ultra-processed foods are kind of independent of sort of the caloric uh, piece or the energy piece, but just eating them in general is uh, problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I look forward to that research when it becomes available. We'll have you back on to talk about it. And thanks so much for joining me today. I think this is really fascinating new line of inquiry where we're learning so much more about the at such a greater level of resolution, I would say, about the nutritional differences between grass-fed and and grain-fed meat. And it's, again, you know, I think intuitively many of us suspected this, but it's really important to have the data that backs it up. And even within that data, we're we're all learning something new, you know, maybe some 
some surprises or some things that we might not have suspected, which is why it's so important to do the research. Absolutely, Chris. I'm always surprised too about some of these findings that uh, that we make, and then I'm like, oh yeah, but that, I had not expected that. But that's what keeps exciting, of course. Exactly. Well, thanks, Stefan, again. And where can people learn more about your work? Um, so on Twitter, I'm at Van Vliet PhD. So my last name and then the letters PhD. Um, and that if you type in my name uh, on Google or YouTube, there's there's many webinars that uh, and, and invited talks that I've given over. Uh, over time, where uh, I go through some of the slides on some of the work that we talk about with grass-fed beef and uh, uh, Google Scholar profile, and we also always pay for open access fees so that our papers can be uh, read by uh, yeah anyone really, rather than it end up being a pay behind a paywall and a uh, hundred scientists read it instead of uh, a broader audience. I really appreciate that about your research, and I know a lot of my citizen scientists listeners do as well. So thank you for doing that. I wish more researchers did do that. I know it's it's not always easy to do. So uh, really, props to you guys for for doing that with your papers. Thanks everyone for listening. Keep sending your questions. ChrisCresser.com/slash/podcast/question, and we'll talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.